Last time that we gathered on the Lord's Day, we considered the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. And we found its foundations in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. We first learned in about the covenant of grace, its definition. We defined it as a relational arrangement initiated by God's sovereign dispensing of his kindness, goodness, and wisdom toward man. Secondly, we learned that although the, co- the words covenant and grace and even gospel are not present in Genesis 3.15, Their realities are present in the text. Amen. We did not see the words grace or covenant or even gospel, but their realities are present in the text. They are constructed not only by implication, but they are theologically constructed all throughout the scriptures, which builds upon that text. And further explains it. We then define the covenant of grace and gained a great definition from our confession, chapter seven, verse or chapter seven, paragraph two. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. And promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. We simplified that down to commitments and asked, what is God committing to do? God commits to give eternal life to all those who have faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His finished and accomplished work on behalf of sinners who have rebelled against him in Adam. And if that were not enough, brothers and sisters, God not only promises to give eternal life to all those who have faith, but God also promises to give the very thing that he requires of all men. Faith in God. God gives the very thing that he requires of all men, which then led us to our fourth point. The covenant of grace or the gospel is a promise and not a law. The covenant of grace is a promise and not a law. It's something that God will do and that God has done. It was graciously given to all who believe. And God alone enabled that belief. Previously, Adam could only come to God on the basis of his obedience to God, his his work in the covenant of works. But Adam could no longer come to God on that basis. Why? Because he disobeyed. He broke the covenant of works. Therefore, the basis on which Adam would previously come to God had been destroyed. He had broken this covenant and could no longer come to God on that basis. The covenant of grace, then. It solves man's dilemma. The covenant of grace solves man's dilemma of sin and separation between God. The covenant of grace is a promise, not of what man will do, but of what God will do in the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read this great quote from last week from John Bunyan, 
run, John, run, the law commands, but neither gives us feet nor gives us hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law says do this and live, but the law does not give you the strength to fulfill the commands. The gospel does the opposite. The gospel gives you life and also gives you the strength to live and obey. That is grace, brothers and sisters. That is grace. The gospel is a promise, not a law. The covenant of grace is a promise of what God will do and what God has done. And because the covenant of grace is guaranteed and secured by God himself, we can therefore invest complete confidence and trust in him that he will do what he says he will do. God is the one who makes that promise. And we can place all of our confidence and trust in God. Has God ever once not gave a promise that he has not kept? No, sir. No, ma'am. We concluded last week's sermon. When we concluded last week's sermon, I began to ask questions about the sermon itself. Questions that someone might ask after hearing a sermon like that set in the Garden of Eden. And if you are like me, you may have asked a question like, when Adam fell, was the promise of the covenant of grace, listen to this, a reaction from God to the problem of the failed covenant of works? You get that? Meaning, did God plan, did God's plan fail when Adam rebelled against him? Was God surprised by the fall of man? And was the covenant of grace a, a way of God fixing the problem out of reaction? Was the fall of man a, a plan that had always existed in the will of God? Or was, was it something that came about after Adam fell? These are important questions to ask. This morning, with God's help, we are going to see that before anything is that was, before all things were created, a covenant was made on our behalf, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. If you're taking notes this morning, our title for this morning is the covenant of redemption. And in the midst of learning about the covenant of redemption, I pray that you may understand with God's help. That the fall of man was no accident. The fall of man was not an accident. But was the eternal will of God. I pray that you may understand that God was not surprised by man when he fell. Nor was the promised covenant of grace God's reaction to the, the broken covenant of works. But rather... The broken covenant of works was the birthing pains of the covenant and redemption of redemption in history. The broken covenant of works was the birthing pains of the covenant of redemption in history. And as we learn of the covenant of redemption, we are going to get, by God's help and grace, a better perspective 
of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished and why it is so beautiful, why it is so wonderful. So let us stand with that said for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. You may see that the heading is the Lord's chosen servant. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and to the spirit and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Stay, keep your place there in the book of Isaiah. We will be jumping around much in that book. Our first point of two points is this. Number one, the participants of the covenant. The participants of the covenant. Now, when a covenant is made, there are parties or participants who participate in a covenant. So then we must ask this question. Who are the covenanters or the participants in the covenant of redemption? The parties, the participants, the covenanters. I'm, I'm saying all of the same things. Parties, covenants, uh, part, uh, covenanters, parties, participants. They are the three eternal persons of the Godhead, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. They are the participants in the covenant of redemption. In the Holy Trinity, a covenant was made about our salvation. Listen, before anything was that is. Covenants are based upon commitments. That carries sanctions to guarantee that the parties involved will keep their commitments. In covenants, the language is most often, you will and I will. Whenever we see these coupled together, there is no doubt a covenant taking place in Scripture. You will and I will. Now, what are we asserting this morning? We are asserting, we are making a statement or a claim that there was a covenant made between the Godhead before all things were created. Now, that's a heavy statement. And we should ask, where do we see that in Scripture? So it is our task this morning to, first of all, prove 
that there is a covenant made in Scripture between the Godhead, eternal three in one. So then we must look for passages where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are making commitments one to another. A promise of, a commitment of, some kind of of commitment of, you will and I will. That's our task. Now, where do you think we should start? We should start with what we just read. Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah chapter 42, you will see this uh, I will and you will pattern or motif in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. In verses 1 through 4, the prophet Isaiah describes the servant whom the Lord God has chosen. And what does God promise to do? Uphold him. In verses 1 through 4, the prophet speaks of what the servant will do. What will he do? He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. Meaning this, he will not fight against those who are accusing him. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will bring forth, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged, as we will see later. He will set his face as flint. This is what the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has spoken concerning the servant of the Lord. This is what he will do. Now, what are we looking for? He will, I will, or I will, you will, motifs or patterns in order to establish a covenant. Are you with me? When we come to verses 5 through 7, the Lord God begins to speak to his servant. Now, listen, not about his, what his servant will do, but rather about what God will do. You see that? In verses 5 through 7, the prophet begins to prophesy what God says, not what the servant will do, but what God will do. In verse 5, he's not only called his servant in righteousness, but he has promised, God has promised that he will. He's making a commitment. He will sustain him in righteousness. He will sustain the Lord Jesus Christ, who this is speaking of, in righteousness. He will help him to live sinlessly before God, to obey the law before God. The Lord God will give the servant as what? A covenant for the people. He gives the servant as a covenant for the people to be a light to the nations. What will he do? He will open the eyes of those who are blind. He will bring out prisoners from their dungeons. The servant has a task. And that, that task has been given to him by the father. And the father also has a task that he is covenanted to do as well. Go over to Isaiah chapter 48 or 49. We're going to do a lot of running this morning. Isaiah 49 and verse 8 and 9. This is much like Isaiah 42. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will, see there, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish a land, to apportion the desolate heritage, heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways 
on all bare heights shall be their pasture. The Lord God is once again speaking to his servant that he has given him as a covenant to the people. The servant has been given a mission by God in which he must perform a certain work that God has covenanted, promised to help that servant on. He's given him a mission and he will ensure that he will accomplish all that has been given to him to accomplish on that mission. As you continue to read through the prophet Isaiah, we come to the words of the servant himself. God has spoken and now the servant speaks. Uh, Isaiah chapter 50 in verse 4. So far we have only heard from who? God the Father. Now we are hearing from the chosen servant of God the Father. Verse 4. The Lord God has given me. See that? You see the language there? The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Who does it sound like? But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face as flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let him stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. If you have read the Gospels, these words echo that which is acted upon and fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has given, been given the words of those who know, of those who have been taught. He has been given the tongue of those who know much. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has had his ear quickened to what God is saying to him. And he is obedient to the commands of God. He has lived righteous. And though he may be struck on the face and though his beard may be pulled out, he stands innocent before his accusers. He sets his face like flint. Now, why would he set his face like flint? Because he is determined. He will not be moved. In what? In the mission that has been given to him by who? By the Father. He will not be moved. He has been given a task by the Father. The Father has made a commitment to him, and he has made a commitment to the Father. There's a covenant there. His vindication is near. What is vindication? He shall be resurrected. God will be his advocate. The Lord God promises to be on his side. He will not be dismayed. The prophet has spoken the words, these words, and those who have heard these words. Now, listen, put yourselves in the shoes of those who were hearing the, the, the prophecies of Isaiah. They are looking forward to this servant to come. And they have hidden these prophecies in their heart, anxiously awaiting the one who was to come, the servant of the Lord. Fast forward a few hundred years. And the son of a carpenter, raised in Nazareth, appears in a synagogue on the Sabbath, stands, opens the scroll to read, and finds the words of the prophet Isaiah. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. 
And when he finds the place, what does he read? 16, Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He rolled, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he said, and he began to say to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Lord Jesus Christ came to the place of, of the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, that spoke of him. He reads this passage. He sits down and he utters the words that people have longed to hear for centuries today. Not in the future, but today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now listen, what is he saying? He is saying that he is the servant of the Lord from the passages that we just read. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying he is the one foretold by the prophet Isaiah. And that all that Isaiah has foretold about him has been fulfilled or was soon to be fulfilled in Christ. Now listen. What else does this mean? We are talking about a covenant, a covenant of redemption that was made before all things that are were. We are talking about a, a, a covenant made between the triune God. This does not only mean that Christ has arrived. But the Lord Jesus Christ is is claiming that he has always been. Now, how is that so? How is he claiming and how are we asserting that Christ is saying that he has always been? Now, when the prophet Isaiah writes of the covenant of the Lord and the servant or the covenant between the Lord and the servant, how does he write? He writes as, as if there was a dialogue taking place. As if there is a conversation taking place between God, the father and the servant of the Lord. It is God the Father speaking to the Son or the servant and the servant or son speaking back to God the Father. They are the parties in this covenant. R real quick, the Spirit is also a part of this covenant. He equips and sustains the servant. We'll talk about that more in a moment or next week. But there is a dialogue happening outside of time. Before time was, the prophet is prophesying, speaking of a covenant that was taking place Outside of time, outside of space, Christ, who stood among the people, is claiming to be the one in that dialogue. In that conversation, Christ is saying, and the people understand this, he has not just come, but that he has always been by implication. And listen, and Christ would not deny that implication. Why would he not deny that implication? What has he said about himself? Before Abraham was... I am. The scriptures portray uh, this. Listen to this very closely. Intra 
Trinitarian dialogue. Intra, within itself, not inter, that would be uh, this trinity with that trinity, but intra, tra, dialogue, intra-Trinitarian dialogue that is happening within itself. And this dialogue is uh, somewhat anthropomorphic. Now, we've heard that word over and over again, anthropomorphic, meaning this, meaning it is expressed to us in a way that we can understand, though that is not exactly what it is. Does that make sense? It's explained to us in a way that we can comprehend or that we can apprehend so that we might better understand something that is going on, but in human terms. So the intra-Trinitarian dialogue that is taking place is explained to us in human mode. As if, it is almost portrayed to us as if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are sitting down having coffee and having a conversation with one another. Now that is not what has happened, but that is the way it is expressed to us so that we might understand what is happening or what has happened. Does that make sense? Go back and hear this later if that doesn't make sense. And here's what they are saying to one another. You will do this and I will do that. And therefore, we have a covenant of redemption in the Godhead. It represents God's commitment and his plan of redemption. And all three persons of the Holy Trinity are involved in this covenant of redemption. This enraged the people. When the Lord Jesus Christ read this and said, this is fulfilled in your hearing, they understood what he was saying. They understood that he was saying, he is that servant spoken of in Isaiah. They also understood that he was saying, he is the one that is in dialogue with the Lord God. And they also understood that he was saying, and this took place before anything was here. That's me, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. They were so upset, so enraged, that they attempted to throw him off of the hill. But why would they attempt to do that unless he was claiming to be God? Are you with me? He's eternal. They heard these words and they were enraged. They understood that the plan to save and redeem took place before all things existed that the God the Father covenanted with a servant, and he is saying, that is me. Scripture tells us that he made his way through the crowd. We have all three persons involved in the Trinity, or in the, the covenant of redemption. They're all making commitments. Each person of the Trinity is making a commitment to, in the covenant of redemption. So, we will take our time through this, but let us first Consider the commitments of the Father in the covenant of redemption. The commitments of the Father in the covenant of redemption. Number, number two, so here's our point. Number two, the commitments of the Father in the covenant of redemption. There will be five short subpoints. The commitments of the Father in the covenant of redemption. Here's uh, subpoint number one. Are you with me? Subpoint number one, God the Father obligated the Son to complete a mission. God the Father obligated the Son to complete a mission. Is that on AC, brother, or heat? Okay. 
God the Father obligated the Son to complete a mission. We could say that the Father gave the Son a work to do. And we have already read of that particular work in the servant's songs. Those are those songs that we read in Isaiah. Those are uh, prophecies that are called the servant's songs of Isaiah. The servant is the servant of God. He has come and he has been commanded to go. In the covenant of redemption, God the Father laid on the Son certain obligations or commitments. He commanded him to do what? To become incarnate. To obey the law perfectly. And commanded him to offer up his life as a substitutionary atonement and sacrifice for a particular people. You hear that? What are the obligations? Become incarnate. Go. Obey the law perfectly. Offer yourself as a sacrifice for a people. God the Father gave a work to the Son. Take their flesh. Keep the law. Die in their place. God the Father obligated the Son to complete a mission. That's point number one. Uh, Sub point number two. God the Father appointed the Son to be a federal head. God the Father appointed the Son to be a federal head. We, We have talked about this language before, federal head. It is a representative. A federal head is a representative. Whether you like it or not, our president represents the people of the United States. A CEO of a company represents the company as a whole. A federal head represents a people in a covenant. He covenants on behalf of that people. Or listen to this. He acts on behalf of that people. He acts on behalf of that people. That's a federal head. God did not just give the son a mission. But he also appointed him to be a federal head over a people. To, to represent a people. The mission of the son would therefore have an effect on who? On who? If Christ is a federal head representing a people who goes Before them, his work, therefore, has an effect on who? Say it out loud. The people he represents. Are you with me? If the president of the United States said today, I'm going to push this button and wipe out a certain country. What effects would that have on us? You see that? So the federal head goes and he acts on behalf of and those people whom he acted on behalf of are affected by his actions. Are you with me? Turn to John chapter 17. Speaking of federal headship. John 17 and verse 1. When the Lord Jesus, or when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now listen to this. We're listening for the language of representation. Okay? We're listening for the language of uh, one standing in the place of a group of people. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son, the son may glorify you. Since you have given him, what? Authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who? All whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. 
that they, who? Who's they? All you have given him. Right? Who is him? Christ. Christ has been given a specific people. Here's what he's doing. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What has he done? I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you have give, given me to do, or gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And what? And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have become and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I, you could keep going. He's talking about a people that has been given to him by the Father. He stands then as their representative. Christ stands as their representative. He's been given a mission. On whose behalf? On their behalf. He has been given an elect people. They are now securely in his hands. Uh, Christ will go on to say, and no one will snatch them out of his hands. The father has given the son a people. The father commanded the son to lay down his life and to, in their place, represent them. So when Christ dies, who also dies with him? Those whom he has represented. Right. We receive the effects of that death. And when Christ rises. What do we receive? The benefits of that resurrection. Why? Because he represents us. We'll get more into this in a moment. Uh, Sub point number three. The father appointed the son. To be a king, priest and prophet. The father appointed the son to be a king, priest, and prophet. Now that's a heavy statement. The Lord Jesus Christ was sent to die for a people. But his mission was much more than than go and, and offer himself as a sacrifice. Christ was to be a mediator. He was appointed as a mediator for fallen men. We cannot approach God without some kind of mediation. Why? Why, why do we need someone to go between us and God? Why? why? Why is there a need for someone to go in between us and God? We talked about this this morning at the narrow road. Because of our sin. Sin has done what between our relationship, us and God? Separated our relationship. There is hostility now. So in order for there to be reconciliation, there must first be a mediator. Someone who goes on behalf so that the two parties can come together. Amen. When there is uh, uh, problems in relationships or marriage and there is about to be a, a divorce. What usually saves a divorce or at least helps the process be peaceful? A mediator. Mediation. Christ comes as our mediator because we could not go to, to God on our own. And Christ is a mediator for who? A specific people. A specific people. And as mediator, he exercises the office of prophet, priest, and king by the Father's decree. Go to Psalm chapter 2. 
Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6. This is Christ the King. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is he? He has set his what? King on Zion, his holy hill. And I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. The son is also called who? Who? What has he made him? He has set him as what? And then he goes on to say, the Lord said to me, you are my son, who was also the king. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It is a foreordained law, a foreordained decree, meaning it happened beforehand. A commandment that is already set, set in place that the son is appointed as the king. But his office is not only that of a king. Go to Psalm 110. Actually, don't go to there. Just listen. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn. Swearing is the language of what? Covenant. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according or in the order of Melchizedek. Who is he speaking of? The son. The son has been appointed not only as king, but as priest. He is a priest forever. Melchizedek, you've read of him in the book of Genesis, has no genealogy. Listen, not because he is Christ. Melchizedek is not Christ. He is not a prefigurement of Christ. He is not a Christophany. Melchizedek is simply a, a, a type pointing to the antitype, Christ. He is a shadow pointing to the real thing, Christ. Melchizedek was what? A priest with no genealogy. Why? Not because he's Christ, but because he was the one pointing to Christ and what Christ would be, a priest who is eternal. Are you with me? The son is appointed as a priest by God, the father. But and you could read more extensively about this in the book of Hebrews. But it wasn't just limited to king and the priest either. Back to Isaiah 61. And what does the prophet say that the Lord Jesus Christ quoted? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me to do what? Bring good news. Bring the gospel. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. What does the servant say? The Lord God has given me a message. And I am the spokesman of the Lord. John 17, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I spoke the words that you gave me. God the Father gave God the Son a message. He was his mouthpiece. To the people. Even look at the transfiguration. When the glory cloud speaks of Jesus. What does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hebrews 1. God has spoken uh, in in ages past. And finally once and for all. He's spoken in 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 an authoritative way. Through his son. What does that make him? It makes him a prophet. Christ proclaims. Christ Christ gives the good news. The words that he speaks are given to him by God. He is a prophet. He is a priest 
king and prophet. And there's another in scriptures who meets that description as well. Who is he? Adam. But did Adam succeed in the mission given to him? No. The Lord Jesus Christ is the second Adam, the better Adam, the faithful Adam, who is truly prophet, truly king, and truly priest, given to him by God. Number four, the father commits himself to uphold the son. We've already read this where the servant of the Lord, where the Lord God promises to sustain, sustain the servant. He said, I am the Lord. In the time of salvation, I have helped you. The father does not simply send the son, but promises to uphold and sustain the son in his mission. This is huge. In the, the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David. David, the Lord God appoints David and his offspring as kings over Israel, as federal heads over the nation. With commissions to provide and protect the nation. The kings are committed to, commissioned to provide and protect the nation. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Righteous kings brought about blessing. Wicked kings brought about cursing for the kingdom. Although God supplied his spirit to help the kings, listen, there was no guarantee of that assistance. You hear that? God promises that in the line of David's kings, he would help. But there was no guarantee that he would help every single one of them. Read through the kings in Samuel and in first and second kings. How many of them serve the Lord while the next one worshiped false idols? David prayed that God would not remove his Holy Spirit from him as he did with Saul. Which is not a reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but rather the fact that God would enable Help someone pour out his spirit on those who were given offices and help them assist them with his spirit. That's the Davidic covenant. No promise of the Holy Spirit. No promise of sustaining and upholding, but rather a threat. David, if you and your sons are unfaithful, I will discipline them with the rod of iron and curse the people. But in the covenant of redemption. Where the son is appointed to be king over the people, the father says, I will help you in every stage and in every step of this mission that I am giving you. And it will be perfectly accomplished and fulfilled. Do you see the difference there? One is no guarantee. And the other, the covenant of redemption, God guarantees I will be with you every step of the way. The father commits himself to the son to ensure and secure the success of the servant's mission. How wonderful is that? You're going to really, this will really hit home for you in just a moment. Lastly, the, fam, the father promised a reward to the son. The father promised a reward to the son. A law is just a law. Do this and you must obey. But covenants are more than commands. They are commands with rewards attached to them. So then... What was the reward promised to the son if he faithfully and perfectly obeyed the commitments and obligations that were given to him by the father? Do we see any evidence in scripture that points to rewards, uh, promises from God the father based upon the completion and success of the mission of the son? 
Yes, we do. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Listen to this now. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, do what? Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, I will do what? Provide or divide a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Wow. Do you see the reward there? What do we see? The father says it was or God says it was the will of the father that the son Go all the way to death. And when he does, when his soul has been made an offering for guilt, he shall see what? His offspring. Or as Hebrew says, he shall bring many sons to glory. That's his reward. He shall see the fruit of his labor. He shall have prolonged days. He shall enjoy eternal resurrected life. He shall have honor and riches, glory, because he has poured out his soul, because he has suffered and he has suffered for a people according to the commitment that God has given him. He shall see his offspring. He shall enjoy his reward. Many many will be counted righteous because of him. And he will be rewarded and magnified, receiving a great portion as a conquering victor. Brothers and sisters, as I look upon you this morning, it is my joy to be among you as the fruit of his suffering. Think about it. What does he gain? And you look to yourself. Me? Sinful, dirty, unworthy, inconsistent. Un, or always wavering, always going back and forth, never steady, but truly loving. Me? I am a part of his reward. To think that the covenant of redemption made before you were ever even born was made with you in mind. That you may be a reward to God. Why? How? Philippians 2. We will close with this final scripture. And verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a wondrous truth this is. God the Father sent God the Son on a mission. He appointed him as federal head of an elect people. Constituted him as prophet, priest, and king. Promised to sustain him in every step of his work. And promised him an eternal reward of a resurrected, glorified life for himself and for all the people for whom he died in the new creation. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that before the world was created, God of the Holy Trinity decreed to save you and me. Personally, individually, God the Son knew those for whom he was taking on his flesh. It was not hypothetical. It was not potential. It was absolutely intentional. Every single one of you he knew by name. He knew those for whom he obeyed the law. He knew those for whom he was dying. Our salvation is it's not coincidental. It's not coincidental. Of all the things that have happened in your life, where you are now is not by coincidence. It is by providence. It is the very intention of God. The accomplishment was for you. And think of Christ right now. All the glory that he has earned. All the majesty and splendor that he indwells now. He gives the same to you. The inheritance that is his also belongs to you. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his glory. Why? Because he represents you. And you receive what he gets. You receive as a part of of being a part of him. You therefore receive or affected by what he has. He is your federal head. What he has now belongs to you. This is how we connect this to the new covenant. This is all offered to you by faith alone in Christ alone. And God gives you the faith. It is not of yourself. Lest no man should boast. Praise be to God the Father. Praise be to God the Son. Praise be to God the Holy Spirit. Who has enabled our salvation. Who has sent his Son. And who has accomplished for us. That which was established before you and I ever were. To God be the glory. Let us stand.